All right, if you are carrying your Bibles or your iPads or your phones or whatever it is you use, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5 if you would like. We are going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are all the way to the 6th, 7th, 8th verse. We're just flying right through this thing. The Sermon on the Mount. A couple of different titles or subtitles that I played with in my own head were the need, the solution, and then the result of that solution, the response. And then I came up with another title called A Whole New Attitude or A Whole New Disposition. And I want to stress again, we'll just review very briefly, but I want to stress first and foremost, you know, Jesus started this teaching on the sermon, this, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It was really his first large oration, his first teaching. And if you would, if you'd like to consider it a message or a sermon, whatever you want to call it, but it's put together, you know, God, God created the universe, right? He created everything that we see, right? Everything has a design. Everything is perfect or was perfect before sin made a mess of things. But it was all perfect. And when God gives a message, when Jesus is speaking a message, it's put together in a specific way. He does it very intentionally, very sequentially. And the problem we often run into is we forget that when we try to understand what's written in our Bibles. And I always tell people, you know, when you're trying to interpret what the Bible's saying, the first place you should go is look at the obvious meaning, right? The obvious meaning. But there are sometimes what appears to be the obvious meaning doesn't make sense because the obvious meaning in my mind would contradict much Scripture, some clear doctrines of Scripture. And I think with the Beatitudes in particular, what we call the Beatitudes, I think we can fall into a trap there of saying, well, this is what it means. And we'll touch on that a little bit later. But I want to just encourage you now, when you're looking at this, especially the Sermon on the Mount and especially the Beatitudes, they are laid out sequentially, one building upon the other to make sense. And if we don't remember that, if we don't see the building and connecting them, we can come to some wrong conclusions. When we look at the first three Beatitudes that we've touched on so far, You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek or humble or gentle. We looked at those, and I described them as saying, they're there really showing you the state of desperation we are in before we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. In other words, who we are and what brings us to that place of accepting Christ. It's kind of like, if you want to look at it this way, and not to, not to let anybody put guilt on themselves, it's kind of almost like God is giving us a test to say, let's evaluate your professed Christianity. So when we looked at these, the poor in spirit, those who recognized their need, those who recognized that in us there is nothing good and there is nothing we can do about it. So the poor in spirit, recognizing there's, a, there's something drastically wrong with us. And those who mourn, those who mourn not only recognize that there's a need, there's something wrong with us, there's nothing we can do about it, we are saddened by the way we're living. We are grieved by sin. We mourn about sin. We mourn and grieve that God grieves about our sin. So we know there's nothing we can do about it. We are grieving and sad about the state that we're in and the things that we do. And blessed are the humble or the meek. We are humble and meek. We have seen ourselves for who we really are without Christ. 
And because we've seen ourselves, we have seen and know more about how evil and bad we are before Christ so that nothing anybody in the world says could possibly bother us. So we never have to defend ourselves. And we humble ourselves and look to the cross and look to Christ. So it's like a self-inspection, if you would, in these first three Beatitudes, discovering who we are without Christ, bringing us to that place of recognizing need. We are grieving about it. We humble ourselves. We don't have to defend ourselves to the world because we already know what we are. And it brings us to that place to looking to the cross and brings us to that fourth, what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled or satisfied, or you could even put the word, they shall be saved. Notice, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. We talked about this last week. It's a craving. What do you crave? Do we crave righteousness? It leads us. We see how bad we are. We're grieved by our sin. We know we can't do anything about it. We humble ourselves, and we look to God. We hunger and thirst for His righteousness. And it says, then we will be filled. So it's like it's expressing the need in the first three, and there is the solution to the need in the fourth one. And then for after the fourth one, there is now a transition. Now it's going to begin to describe this new creation, this new creature in Christ. The Bible talks about a rebirth. It talks about being born again. It talks about this new creature who's pure, holy, and righteous in Christ. There is a transformation that should take place. And it's much more about who we are than what we do. The gospel message itself is way more interested in who we are. It's way more interested in about just being than it is doing. Religion, we've gotten so used to religion and the world measuring everything about doing, doing, doing. Try to be a better Christian. Anybody try to be a better Christian? I'm going to try to do better. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There is an effort that's involved with this. But the effort really should be in being who we are in Christ. If we press into the Lord, begin to discover the things we talked about, the things we sang this morning, we were declaring who we are and who he is. And all of a sudden, we begin to realize that the Holy Spirit is revealing in us that he's transforming us into the image of Christ, that who we are as a Christian. And then all of the doing just manifests because it comes out of there. It's in us. It's growing in us. It's about being, not doing so much. The doing will come naturally. Dr. Martin, or D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones is his name. He, he was a pastor and a medical doctor. He was the pastor at the Westminster Chapel in England for a number of years. He passed away back in the very early 80s. I want to read a quote of his. He says, We are Christians, and our actions are the outcome of that. We are not meant to control our Christianity Our Christianity is rather meant to control us. Now, that may not sound as profound as I think it sounds to you. We're not to control our Christianity. We we should not be constantly striving in the natural, in our flesh, to be a better Christian. 
And other Christians are bad at putting that on us. Sometimes as pastors are bad at putting that on people. Come on, just do better. Try harder. There's an aspect of truth in there, but the reality is, are you seeking the Lord? Are you discovering who you are? You are this new creation. You have been born again. Old things have passed away. All things are new. And we understand it's a process. But as we're working our way into this this mentality, Jesus is saying in this teaching, and we'll see it very clearly as we go into the, the blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In a little while, I want to talk about the last part of that verse because I think a lot of us interpret that verse in a way that is totally, in my mind, wrong. And I'll show you what I mean in just a few minutes. The Apostle Paul put it a little differently than what uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said. In Galatians 2.20, he simply says, I have been crucified with Christ as was prayed this morning over the communion elements. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. The Christian life is a life of being led by the Holy Spirit being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us, dwells in us, speaks to us, teaches us, encourages us, comforts us, rebukes us, convicts us. The Holy Spirit's there, always doing these things if we're listening, if we're responding, if we're being that new creature in Christ, not letting our old mind, our old way of thinking take over not striving in the flesh to be better, but just allowing the Holy Spirit responding in obedience and being that child of God, being that new creature in Christ. And the Holy Spirit will bring forth all that needs to be done. The Christian life is one of being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 5, 7, where we're at today, and I'm going to spend most of today talking about that, but really verse 8 and 9 will follow suit. Matthew 5, 7, simply, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Because we have recognized our, our condition without Christ, as he's going through this teaching, we, by the Holy Spirit working, we have repented, we have received forgiveness of sin, we have become saved, born again new creatures in Christ. That makes us the merciful. We have received mercy. We are the merciful, those that have been saved through Christ. So he's saying now, taking them in context, we have been filled, we have been satisfied out of that filling and satisfied out of our lifestyle now, one of the key things, the first thing he mentions is we should be merciful. And it should be a natural outcoming or outgrowth of our new life in Christ. That's why I said it's kind of can be a challenging mirror to look into. As we discover what is meant by being merciful, is that what's coming out of us? Mercy, merciful. 
What does it mean? What does the Lord mean when he says, we're the merciful? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that you're just laid back, easygoing, never judging, uh, wink and smile at sin because we don't want to be unmerciful, pretend that we don't see the wrongs about us. That is not what merciful means. It also has nothing to do with our natural disposition. Oh, they're so laid back. They're so kind. They're so sweet. They never judge. They're merciful. No, that's not what it means. That's not what merciful is. When we look at merciful, we need to remember, well, however we're going to define it, it is an adjective that describes God. That definition, whatever you use to define merciful, remember, God is merciful. Does your definition fit who God is? Does it fit his character? If it doesn't, your definition needs some work. And oftentimes, we define things kind of haphazardly. We define things to make us comfortable. We do this a lot in Scripture. We read something in Scripture, we kind of know what it means right away, but we really don't like it, so we just kind of soften it or twist it or ignore it. When it comes to merciful, we remember God is merciful. We are now children of God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Spirit, lives in us. A natural outgrowth of that should be mercifulness, mercy. It should be just natural. Notice, when we look at that, God is merciful, but he never winks or smiles at sin. He never pretends that sin didn't happen. He never compromises truth. He is just, and it all can work together. The whole doctrine of the atonement, the mercy of God and the justice of God come together. In God's mercy, he looked at us human beings and he said, oh my, look at their suffering. Look at the consequences of sin. Look what's happening to them in his mercy. But then his justice, the wages of sin, the penalty for sin, irregardless of the consequences, is death. Someone has to die to pay the price. No one on earth fits the bill. I'm going to send my son Jesus. And he died what we celebrated this morning, what we remembered this morning. He took on the penalty of sin. His justice was met. His mercy and his justice come together. We need to remember that when we talk about being merciful. If you've accepted Jesus Christ into your life, if you've realized your hopeless condition, you were grieved by your sin, and you humbled yourself to accept the offering that God made through his son Jesus, you are the merciful. And out of us should flow the same kind of mercy. But it should never flow at the expense of truth. The Bible's true, always is true. A good example of merciful would be a familiar story or parable, if you would like, I guess more of a story, in the, uh, in, in, in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter uh, 10, 30 through 36, we're probably more familiar with it when we hear the story of the Good Samaritan. Most of you know the story. If not, I would encourage you to read it. It's a great story. And we see real mercy being manifested. If you know the story, they're one of their mountainous roads in Israel, a scribe or a Levite, 
and a Pharisee or a priest and a Samaritan are walking down this road. And they come across someone who has been robbed and beaten and stripped, and he's laying on the side of the road. Now, we don't know exactly what the, the uh, Levite and the priest felt when they saw this man on the side of the road. But we do know that they moved to the other side and they just walked past. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, being Scripture isn't clear. It would be hard for me to imagine anybody walking by someone like that and not feeling a certain sense of pity. Even maybe some compassion. Look at that poor guy. And as you walk right by. And then there's the Samaritan. The Samaritan, and it's interesting, Jesus uses the Samaritan because the Jews and the Samarit- thought the Samaritans were like dogs. But he uses the Samaritan, and it says the Samaritan came. And he sees this man, the same man in the same condition that the priest and the Levite walked right past. And he had pity upon the man. He took compassion upon the man. And then he took action to alleviate the consequences or the suffering. That is true mercy. Not just pity, not just compassion, but the action to alleviate the suffering. When God showed mercy upon mankind, He just didn't pity us. He just didn't have compassion on us. He certainly wasn't sitting in heaven judging us, but He was compelled to do something about it. And His plan, He had a plan. A plan He'd prepared before the foundations of the earth. And His plan was to send Jesus. The perfect example of mercifulness is right there in that plan. God's mercy compelled him to action. And now we are the merciful. We are those that should have compassion. And why? Why should we have this? It should be something in us. Think about it. Think about who we were before Christ. Some of us in here probably have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're you're not going to like much what I'm saying But the Bible says there is not a single good thing in you. There wasn't a single good thing in me. No matter how I tried, I might do nice things. I could maybe be a good person at times. But from eternity's perspective, there's nothing good in us. Our heart is totally evil. That's who we were. And God in His mercy saw not only who we were, but he saw how we were suffering because of the consequences of sin. And he not only took pity and compassion upon us, he was compelled to alleviate suffering. And because of us in Jesus' teaching, going through those first three Beatitudes, then the fourth one, hungering and thirsting, and being fully satisfied or saved or filled, we now are the merciful. And we should look at people completely different, brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm guilty of this. I'm pretty sure you're guilty of this. We see someone and we judge them about that quick. Or we start to form an opinion of what they are or who they are. We may even see them do something or know that they've done something. We know about them. I know about you. When we are the merciful, We know who we were. 
and we know what we look like. And because of what we went through and received the mercy of God, but His grace and received it by faith, we should look at people totally differently. Before we were saved, the Bible says, we are under the power of sin and death. We shouldn't have an expectation of an unsaved person being able to resist sin. They are under the power of sin. So was I. So were you. But we are now a new creature in Christ. We have been set free. The power of sin has been broken. The power of death has been broken. We have the Holy Spirit living in us, guiding us, teaching us, helping to live a life that would bring glory and honor to God. Does that mean we're perfect? No. Remember, we talked about sanctification, justification a few weeks ago. We're all in process. But we should be merciful. We should look at other people and see them the way God sees them. We should see them as powerless against sin. We should see them suffering the consequences of sin. And the love of Christ should compel us that God has given us the grace to receive the mercy gift that he gave us. And we should extend mercy. We should be not only, forget judging them, we shouldn't just have pity upon them. We shouldn't just have compassion upon them. We should have pity and compassion and be compelled to do something. The ultimate do something is take the opportunity in love to share the truth of Jesus Christ. But it might be we should be compelled to do something like the Good Samaritan did and feed somebody. Give them a clothes to wear. Maybe borrow them or give them a car. Put fuel in their, in their, their propane tank. Whatever it is. But that, we, that is the mercy of God, the mercifulness of us that have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It should just be a natural outflowing of who we are. Once we've seen ourselves as we truly are, we should look at other people differently. You know, I, I say the phrase, and I'm sure you've probably heard somebody say, there but by the grace of God go I. The only problem is when we're saying that, we're almost saying it as like Pharisee would. I used to be as bad as them, but look at me now. The reality is, yes, there by the grace of God, there you are. Therefore, the merciful, us, that have sick to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, should have pity and compassion upon them and be compelled to do something for them. Act. That's what the Samaritan did. I'm going to quote another, kind of a longer quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. And it's going to be him, his way of summarizing the, what we call the Beatitudes up to this point. And he doesn't mince words much. He says this, I am poor in spirit. I realize that I have no righteousness. I realize that face to face with God and his righteousness, I am utterly helpless. I can do nothing. Not only that, I mourn because of the sin that is within me. I have come to see as a result of the operation of the Holy Spirit the blackness of my own heart. I know what it is to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And desire to be rid of this vileness that is within me. Not only that, I am meek which means that I now have experienced this true view of myself. Nobody else can hurt me. Nobody else can insult me. 
Nobody can ever say anything too bad about me. I have seen myself. And my greatest enemy does not know the worst about me. I have seen myself as something truly hateful. And it is because of this that I have hungered and thirsted for righteousness. I have longed for it. I have craved it. I have seen that I cannot create or produce it and that nobody else can. I have hungered and thirsted for that righteousness which will put me right with God, that will reconcile me to God and give me a new nature and life. And I have seen it in Christ. I have been filled. I have received it all as a free gift. That's how these first four Beatitudes build upon one another. And out of that now comes mercifulness. Because of this, I must be merciful. We now should see others through the eyes of Christ. Have that sense of sorrow and pity because they're really helpless slaves to sin just like we were. And then be compelled to take action. Share the truth in love. Share material needs. Whatever it is, show that kind of mercy. We need to remember that it's always the grace of God that makes us merciful. It's not something we can conjure up in our own strength. Which brings me to a problem that I have with the normal interpretation of this verse. The last part of the verse says, they shall receive mercy. Often understood, and I bet by quite a few of us in here, this way. If I don't show mercy to others, God will not show mercy to me. Is that how you understood it? Is that what it says? It's what it says. Can it possibly mean that? Another scripture that I'm not going to look at, but we would call it found in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us, me, my trespasses, what? As I forgive others. Oh, wait a minute now. So my receiving mercy from God requires me to be merciful. My receiving forgiveness from God requires me to forgive others. Well, it sounds good, but it doesn't line up with doctrine of Scripture. So what must it mean? Do I earn his forgiveness in any way, shape, or form? No. It's a gift of God. Can I earn his mercy? No. It's a grace gift of God. If we're going to interpret that scripture to mean what normally or often is understood to mean, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I've got to show mercy to Mike so that Mike shows mercy to me. No, it doesn't work. If we're going to go with that definition, we've got to throw out the whole doctrine of grace. And, better, and maybe just about as bad, none of us are going to make it. Have you forgiven everybody, everything they've ever done to you? If you interpret that scripture to mean forgive us as we forgive others, you're toast. God, show mercy as I have shown everybody else mercy. Again, we're not going to measure up. That's why it's so important to look at these verses sequentially and in context of what Jesus is teaching. 
recognizing our need, grieved over that sin in our life, humbling ourselves so that we are hungering and thirsting. God, change me. You hear so many testimonies, and mine was like that, crying out sometimes somewhere and saying, God, if this is all there is, there's got to be more. Whatever it is, show me, reveal it to me. I need it. Hungering and thirsting for the change that can only come in Christ. And you, by grace... The working of the Holy Spirit wooing you. You're drawn to accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. And you are filled. You are satisfied. What's going on in the world around me? It's important. But it doesn't steal my joy. It doesn't steal my peace. I'm satisfied. I'm filled with the mercy of God. So what does it mean? We are the merciful. Because we have already received mercy. And because we are the merciful, every time we sin, the Holy Spirit's going to woo us and draw us back and we receive more mercy. And more mercy. Because you know what? Us merciful, we are still going to sin. And the Holy Spirit reveals that sin to us. And we're quick to just confess it, give back mercy. There's a, it's like there is a conduit of mercy from the throne of God to those that are already merciful. I believe that's what it means. The merciful will receive mercy. We've already got it, and we're going to get more and more and more because of what we've already accepted through Christ. And it's all by grace. We've been saved by grace through faith, not by works in any way, shape, or form. So I want to encourage us, when you're reading Scripture, in this particular where we're at now in Matthew, read it in context. Read it in sequence. Because Jesus has laid together the most amazing sermon ever put together. And it all builds one precept upon a precept upon precept. And once we have been filled because we've hungered and thirsted, we are the merciful. And as the merciful, we have mercy and we are going to receive mercy more and more. I'm going to read 7, 8, and 9 because I've spent all this time on merciful. We're not going to talk much about the pure in heart or the peacemakers. But remembering what I've said, studying it out yourself, checking me out, see if what I said makes any sense or if I'm a heretic. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Why are they the merciful? Because they've accepted Christ, because they have been filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who are the pure in heart? Those that have the righteousness of Christ. And we can elaborate in a lot of ways. But we, have, we are pure of heart. We will see God. As a matter of fact, in many ways, we have seen God. We see Him in our creation. We've seen what He's done in our life. We have seen Him in many ways, but we will ultimately see Him face to face. The pure in heart. We already are the pure in heart because we have been filled. We have been satisfied. And verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Who are the peacemakers? We are the peacemakers. God has made it peace with us. Our sins have been taken care of through Christ. And they shall be called sons of God. What does the scripture call you and I over and over and over and over? I am a child of God. I am a son and I am a daughter of God. Why am I? Because I'm a peacemaker. Because I have been filled. See how it flows together? If you want to be pure in heart, 
so that you can see God, good luck. It won't work unless you understand I am the pure in heart because I have been filled. I have been satisfied. I'm that new creature in Christ. I've been born again. Old things have passed away. Praise God. Peacemaker, I am already because of what Christ has done in our life. All of our character, all of our attitude, our disposition, if you would, is first, because we have seen who we truly were without Christ, we thirsted and hungered after righteousness to the place the Holy Spirit had us in that place to receive the gift of grace by faith through Christ. Old things passed away, and we're now a new creature in Christ. If that's not you, as I said earlier, this is a challenging test that that the Lord is giving us. If we've accepted Christ, we've truly accepted Christ, you can't fail the test. But we need to just continue to focus on being who he declares us to be, sons and daughters of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We have the righteousness of Christ. We've put on that cloak, if you would. We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. He will lead and guide and direct us. And out of us will flow flow that mercy, the purity of our heart. We will be the peacemaker who does not have to defend We can make peace, not just keep peace. It's who we are in Christ. Remembering, as you go through this, we have been saved by grace through faith. All mercy is a grace gift. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for your word and the Holy Spirit that you've given us. God, I pray that you will put in each one of our hearts here to study your word, to look into your word, Father, if there's anything that I have said or taught that is not accurate, I pray, God, that it would not bring harm to anyone, that it would fall to the ground harmless. But, Lord, I pray that you will quicken in our hearts truth as we read it and study it, that we would go where truth takes us. Lord, I pray that we would, as the merciful, show mercy even as we continue to receive mercy, that we would have pity, that we would have compassion, but we would be compelled to take action, that we would be the hands and feet of Jesus to a hurting, dying world that's in slavery and bondage to sin. We thank you, Lord, for our salvation. Through Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, And may we live lives that bring glory and honor to you and that the kingdom may advance for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.